From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Two-thirds of Americans are overweight, and a third way in as obese. Too much food and not enough exercise get the blame, but now science is warning us that exposure to certain chemicals may also be making us fat and setting off diabetes. A contaminant that's present in 95% of Americans causes insulin resistance in mice. That's a big signal, and the research community ought to be paying more attention to it. Also, the post-Katrina junkyard is going to have to be supersized to handle all the vehicles that were ruined in the floods. Nobody was thinking cars as a major problem. It's debris, it's debris. I'm like, okay, it is debris, but we have to handle it differently. Where do you put 300,000 cars? Those stories and the northeastern states take on climate change. This week on Living on Earth, stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We are what we eat. Being fat or thin depends on what we eat, how much we eat, how much we exercise, and our genetic makeup, right? Well, scientists now say there may be another factor at work. Tiny amounts of synthetic chemicals found in the environment appear to play havoc with hormones that shape our bodies and behavior by turning genes on and off. These chemicals are called endocrine disruptors, and new research shows a link between them and setting the stage for obesity even before birth. Joining me is John Peterson Myers. He's the chief scientist and founder of Environmental Health Sciences and co-author of the book Our Stolen Future, which explores the science of endocrine disruption. Hello, sir. Hello, Steve. It's great to be with you. So how do you reconcile the notion that these disorders are linked to our genes, and yet you're talking about chemicals in the environment? That's a really good question, and it basically comes from an old understanding of what it means for a disease to be linked to a gene. For a long time, we thought that that meant heredity. You got a gene from your parents, and it was a bad gene, and you got the disease. But this new science that's been unfolding now for 30 years and has really, really taken off now is saying you can have the right gene, but because of the environment, it's behaving in the wrong way. It could be diet that does it. It could be stress that does it. Or it could be an environmental contaminant. And so what we're learning is turning on its head this whole notion of the separation between environment and genetics. Could you give us a most wanted list of endocrine disrupting, that is hormone disrupting chemicals, and where they're found in our everyday lives? That list is, the overall list is long. The most wanted list is a lot shorter. They basically fall into two categories. Uh, They're the ones like DDT and the PCBs, who are the polychlorinated biphenyls, that have been around for a long time, industrial chemicals, contaminants. There's another category, which are transient, which degrade in the environment fairly rapidly. But because they are present in lots of consumer products, like cosmetics, lipstick, eyeshadow, perfume, or like certain types of plastics, we're exposed to them every day. So those are the two categories. Now, I think we're learning that the perfluorinated compounds, things that are involved in the production of Teflon, are real problems, as are certain compounds used to make flame retardants, called the brominated flame retardants. At the top of the list of the transient compounds are the phthalates and bisphenol A, which is used to make polycarbonate plastic. Okay, so uh, as a consumer, where would I run into these chemicals? You're going to run into them when you 
buy and use a bottle made out of polycarbonate, for example, uh, the rigid, really popular sports bottles that uh, virtually every college kid has. The way those are made um, guarantees that this compound called bisphenol A will leach into the water. And there's a new, whole new generation of science that's unfolded in the last 10 years that has transformed what scientists understands about the risk of that chemical. Pete, could you tell us about the range of sicknesses that have been linked to the endocrine disruptors? Well, that, that list is really quite large. It, it runs from neurodevelopmental disorders, things like ADHD, attention hyperactivity disorder syndrome, autism, obesity, and a variety of problems having to do with weight regulation, what scientists call weight homeostasis, diabetes, problems of aging, and what happens to people as they're getting old, definitely problems in infertility, and malfunctions in the immune system so that people wind up either with immune systems that are hyperactive and are involved in causing autoimmune disorders or the opposite, immune systems that aren't strong enough to help us resist the diseases that we normally would be able to resist. So what's the link now between the hormone-disrupting chemicals um, that science is finding and this question of obesity? Now, I figure that, you know, I'm kind of big around the middle because I don't exercise enough and I probably eat too much. There's no doubt, Steve, that those are problems. What our weight is clearly is affected by how much we eat and how much exercise we get. But think about it. We all know people who are tall and thin and eat like a horse and don't put weight on, period. Or we know other people who, no matter how hard they try to limit their intake, they can't lose weight. It turns out that in addition to the simple in and out what you eat and how much you exercise, there are feedback systems that work in the body that balance weight. What this new science is telling us is that there, there are things that can happen, especially in development in the womb, that appear to be having an effect on obesity. How much research has been done on this uh, link between uh, endocrine or hormone disruptors and uh, obesity tendencies? Not a lot. Not a lot. Not nearly enough. We've got some a small number of studies that are raising big questions. And because obesity is such a, a huge issue, this is a huge public health problem. And we're getting some signals from the animal research that conditions in the womb can affect obesity. Probably the most dramatic study of all of these has just been published within the last two months by a laboratory in Spain. And they looked at the effect of bisphenol A, this compound that comes out of polycarbonate plastic, they looked at it and they created an experiment. They ran an experiment where they exposed adult mice to bisphenol A at a level that you can find in a lot of people, a lot of Americans. And what they found is that, that within four days, those adult mice developed insulin resistance. They were no longer responding. Their cells were no longer responding properly to insulin. Well, when insulin resistance develops in people, 25% of the people that get it go on to develop type 2 diabetes. It's, it is the central piece of metabolic syndrome. So here you've got this animal result saying a contaminant that's present in 95% of Americans at levels at which the experiments were run causes insulin resistance in mice. That's a big signal, and the research community ought to be paying more attention to it. So, Dr. Myers, can you tell us some good news? Well, 
Yes, Steve, I'm glad you asked that because at first encounter, this information is depressing because it's telling us that there are some contaminants in the environment that are interfering with gene expression at low levels and that the science is suggesting it's linked to a number of human health problems, serious problems. But at the same time, think of it this way. As these signals become sharper, clearer, we're going to be in a position to reduce exposures. We're going to be in a position to prevent diseases that until 10 or 15 years ago, many people wouldn't have imagined were preventable. I think that's really good news. John Peterson Myers is a biologist who's the head of Environmental Health Sciences, which publishes the Environmental Health News Service. Thanks so much for taking this time. Steve, it's been a pleasure. As this record-setting hurricane season demonstrated, high winds can be destructive, but it is massive flooding that often proves to be the most deadly. So warning people that waters are rising has become an urgent priority. Nowhere is the need for this more acute than Honduras, where thousands of people perished in flooding caused by Hurricane Mitch back in 1998. The Honduran government has begun installing a flood warning system, but a group of MIT engineering students who've been volunteering in the region says it uses expensive technology that's prone to human error. So they've come up with something cheaper and simpler. Elizabeth Basha is a graduate student in electrical engineering and computer science and head of the MIT Flood Safe Early Warning Project team. Elizabeth, before I ask you about your project, uh, can you tell me about the community you're working in? We're working in the northeastern area of Honduras. It's a river called the Aguan. And we're working with communities that live on the very edge of end of this river, right where the river meets the um, Caribbean Ocean, actually. And these communities are in a very precarious position. The river's very flat, and so the area they live on, when it does flood, the water just spreads out and engulfs them. So what's wrong with the current flood warning system there? I understand that the, the government of Honduras has installed a pretty sophisticated system, right? It's not actually that sophisticated. They just installed the system in this river last year. And the way that system works is primarily volunteer-based in terms of the measurement technique. So families will have a radio in their home, and periodically throughout the day, they will go and look at markings on a bridge that tell them the river level, radio that in to a central spot. And that central office run by the government collects all this data and then determines um, what the alert system should be. And they do sometimes take into account some satellite sensors that were installed by the USGS, but primarily it's based on these markings on the river. So what's wrong with that? Uh, The problem is is those people don't necessarily go out in the middle of the night. Oh. And Mitch caused water in the uh, wall of water in the middle of the night. so. So they were sleeping. And I suppose it's not a problem for them. If they're upstream and there's a wall of, a lot of water, it's interesting. But if you're downstream, it's a disaster. Exactly. And that's the key problem in this basin. Um, they've in- successfully installed the system in very small basins where the same people measuring are the same people affected. But in this instance, the people upstream aren't affected by the flooding in the same way. So tell me about the system that your group uh, and MIT has, has developed. Uh, where is it located? How does it work? So we're actually still in the process of it. Um, It's going to be all along this river basin, and it's an autonomous system, meaning that the sensors upstream measure on a regular basis without any need for human contact. The data values are transmitted via radio and uh, compute a level 
of what the river is going to be like in the communities. They basically determine whether or not there will be a flood. As the picture becomes clear, it matches that to alert levels. It determines whether or not, based on community input, that means that the, they need to evacuate. And once it's determined that, it sends that information on to the communities as well. So you've designed a system that's, well, it's rather complex, but at the same time, it, well, it's fairly simple. Um, so this is an example of, of simple being better? I think in this situation, we examined the problem and tried to solve it in a very different way than the people had done before. I mean, the USGS had installed these satellite sensors with the same idea, but it seems that they haven't considered the problems that those sorts of things have. Satellite systems are very expensive. There's long-term messaging costs and those sorts of issues. And instead, we went down and we said, okay, we know we don't have a lot of money, and we know that we need to install something that's easy to maintain. And we went as low-tech and as um, minimalistic as possible in order to do that. And I think that our end result is a system that's much easier to install, much easier to maintain, and really solves the problem. Elizabeth Basha is an MIT graduate student in electrical engineering and computer science. And uh, back to Honduras sometime in the near future. Thanks for stopping by. Yes, thank you. Coming up, Hurricane Katrina's floods left behind hundreds of thousands of ruined cars. The challenge of keeping them off the used car lot and getting them into the junkyard is just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As thousands of diplomats from around the world meet in Montreal to negotiate the next phase of the Kyoto Protocol on climate change, the United States remains on the sidelines in firm opposition to mandatory caps on emissions of global warming gases. But back home, that hasn't stopped some states from moving to enact limits on CO2 from power plants. The most ambitious plan is called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, and it involves Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont. The states were expected to announce a cap-and-trade system, similar to the Kyoto Protocol, during the Montreal meeting. But at the last moment, Massachusetts Republican Governor Mitt Romney put on the brakes, saying as the deal is presently written, a cap-and-trade regime might be too costly. Joining me is reporter Beth Daly, who's been following this story for the Boston Globe. Thanks for coming in, Beth. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Beth, how, how would a cap-and-trade system work here with these power plants in the Northeast? What happens is that every power plant will get a certain allotment of how much pollution they can emit into the air. If they use up that allotment, then they'll have to buy more allowances from cleaner burning power plants that haven't used up their allotment of pollution credits. And so basically, the dirtier plants will buy the right to pollute from cleaner plants. And that price would float, whatever the market would bear. Exactly. The, the price would float, and the, and the understanding is that the price would rise the dirtier the power plant is and the closer to the overall emissions cap they're reaching. So the price can fluctuate greatly from zero to way up there. Now, what does Governor Romney, the Massachusetts uh, Republican governor, proposed? I, I gather he likes the notion of having uh, a regional uh, cap on carbon dioxide emissions, but he doesn't want to have this cap-and-trade system. Exactly. He likes the idea of a cap, but he, he doesn't seem to like the uncertainty it will provide to businesses of how high it will cost to emit a ton of carbon dioxide. So what he's proposed is, let's place a price cap, you know, saying the price of a ton of carbon dioxide will never go over a certain amount. And businesses like this very much because it provides certainty for them when they're trying to pollute, that they'll know they'll never have to pay a certain over a certain amount. Now, environmentalists 
dislike this intensely because they feel it will give a power plant the right to pollute even more than they're allowed to. Uh, as I understand it, Governor uh, Romney of Massachusetts is considered to be a possible presidential candidate. To what extent do you think his presidential ambitions might have to do with this uh, reversal now or this slowdown on the uh, regional greenhouse gas initiative? Certainly a lot of what Governor Romney does is viewed through the prism of him running for the national office. But we don't have any direct knowledge that he's getting any pressure from the White House, for example, or this is anything but his decision. What Will the regional greenhouse gas initiative do to consumer bank accounts uh, in those northeastern states when it comes right down to it? It's interesting in part because Romney said three weeks ago that prices would only rise 1% or 2% under Reggie. And in fact, Reggie's own analysis shows that the average household bill will increase $3 to $33 annually over the next 15 years. But if energy efficiency programs are enacted, would actually decline over $100 a year. How much would this uh, initiative actually reduce greenhouse gases? Well, actually, that's a really good question. No, hardly anything. I mean, global warming, as we all know, is a global problem. And the Northeast states getting together to reduce climate change is really seen as a symbolic move to the rest of the world. And it meant so much that the Reggie organizers have worked incredibly hard to get it done in time for the Montreal conference to say, hey, look, world, you know, President Bush may not be doing anything, but we certainly are, and we're committed to making this happen. Um, it was also believed that if Reggie is done soon enough, um, other states might start grappling with the same issues. If Reggie fails, it's unclear what is going to happen. Beth Daly is a science and environment reporter at the Boston Globe. Thanks for this update. Thanks for having me. It's not just in the East that moves are underway to rein in the major emitters of greenhouse gases. With me to talk about the developments on the other side of the continent is Living on Earth's Western Bureau Chief, Ingrid Lobet. Hi, Ingrid. How's the issue playing out there? Hi, Steve. Yeah, you are starting to hear talk about this subject here in California. The governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he has his own climate action team, and they're going to be presenting him with several different plans for letting power companies trade carbon credits. And then the Los Angeles legislator who authored California's uh, climate change law for vehicles, Assemblymember Fran Pavley, she's working on a bill to cap greenhouse gas emissions from power plants and from the oil and gas industry and cement makers. That would probably mean mandatory CO2 reduction and could become a regional coastal initiative with Oregon and Washington. But all these are in the talk stages so far, aren't they? Um, Where the rubber literally meets the road is on California's vehicle emissions law and other states are now following suit. Uh, Tell me more about that, please. Right. Um, as as you know, California has this landmark law to limit greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles. And when California passed that legislation, it was a fierce fight with the auto companies because other states so often adopt California's measures to fight air pollution. And that's the same thing that's happening here now with the greenhouse gas issue as well. Uh, in fact, now states with combined sales of 30 percent of the American car market are now adopting California's rules. So if they proceed along the same timeline as California, what could that mean? It would mean that about three years from today, the 2009 model year, cars would have to emit less carbon dioxide or one of the other greenhouse gases, 22% less by 2012 and 30% less by the year 2016. And this is currently the law in California. This is the law. The regulations that accompany the law have been written, they've been approved, and they go fully into effect in January in a few weeks. 
But right now, the automobile makers are quite unhappy about this. Uh, they're challenging the law in court. Uh, they started by filing a lawsuit in California. How's that going? Right. They've already challenged New York. They've challenged Oregon. And they say that they will challenge every state that votes to adopt greenhouse gas rules because they, they say this is really about forcing car makers to build cars with better mileage. And only the federal government is allowed to do that. But um, as you said, of course, the real battle is the lawsuit that's already been filed in California. The Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers sued California in federal court in Fresno. And that case is proceeding. And recently, the judge, Judge O'Neill said that environmental groups could join with the state to help it make its case. And on the other side, he said, likewise, the automakers could be joined by their friends in International Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers. Now, why is it important that environmental groups have been allowed to join this uh, lawsuit? What's the argument that they're helping to hone? Uh, California believes, and their environmental joiners agree, that their best argument is to go directly head-to-head with the car makers and argue that, in fact, they are regulating air pollution, uh, not mileage, and that they are authorized to do that by the Clean Air Act. Where the case might get a little more interesting for the average listener is when the parties actually start to argue about whether carbon dioxide is a pollutant. That's a, a pretty important question for the country, and that aspect of the case could end up being decided in in D.C. or in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in the meantime, the assembly line is already changing to accommodate the law? Well, uh, we don't exactly know that, and it does raise an interesting question. You can't just change an assembly line uh, on a dime, and the first cars that have to comply will be the ones in showrooms about three years from now. Of course, it's not a radical reduction in emissions that they have to have uh, by then. But it is interesting to note that the automakers have not asked the judge for an injunction. They've not asked uh, to have the judge put the regulation on hold. So, yes, it's going forward. Ingrid Lobet is Living on Earth's Western Bureau Chief. Thanks so much, Ingrid. You're welcome, Steve. It's still hard to grasp the enormity of the devastation wrought by Hurricanes Katrina and Wilma along the Gulf Coast. One measure is how much debris the storms left behind. The Environmental Protection Agency now says that in Louisiana alone, 22 million tons of waste, everything from refrigerators to oak trees, will need to be disposed of. Reporter Molly Peterson found that hundreds of thousands of flooded cars constitute one disposal nightmare, and they're only a fraction of the cleanup task at hand. Claiborne Avenue was once a center of black commerce in New Orleans. Along this stretch, it was like a grassy neighborhood park. Even after the freeway overhead blocked out the sun back in the 60s, people have still gathered down here, on lawn chairs and around barbecues. But three months after the waters rose, Claiborne is still a graveyard of flooded cars. Over here is a brown Chevy pickup truck. In the truck bed, there's three air conditioners, one with a rusty metal tank attached. On the front seat, there's a saw. A few cars down, there's a gray Infiniti sedan with rings of sediment on it. It looks like striations, lines, and rock. It's leaking coolant. There are 17 blocks of cars just here along Claiborne alone. Nobody was thinking cars as a major problem. It's debris, it's debris. I'm like, okay, it is debris, but we have to handle it differently. Where do you put 300,000 cars? 300,000? And they're not like other junk. Even an abandoned car is still property. 
Lieutenant Alan Carpenter of the Louisiana State Police says that's why his officers, along with insurance fraud investigators, have been cataloging vehicle identification numbers in the field. Carpenter says taking time to identify cars and choose collection areas for them is risky. But letting towers and wreckers move in too quickly at first had its own cost. We had one instance in the city of New Orleans. Police officers had identified either vehicles that contained, you know, deceased persons or or near deceased persons, and those bodies were moved and the vehicles were gone before the the group could come collect the bodies. Uh, And it's everybody's got their own interest in doing this, but we have to do this in a lawful, orderly way. Carpenter's interest has been protecting property and clearing the streets safely. Others see flooded cars as a potential health hazard. Initial testing showed that New Orleans floodwaters did not contain high levels of carcinogens like benzene. But Bob Stewart from the auto repair advocacy group CCAR Greenlink says many waterlogged cars still contain heavy metals and bacteria. The floodwaters that were there in New Orleans tested high for levels of raw sewage, of arsenic, of lead, Uh, So this was a very dangerous brew, and there are open spaces, compartments within a car when it's flooded that may retain that that water and certainly the sludge and residue after the floodwaters have subsided. Insurance adjusters see the cars as tempting merchandise that could be sold to the unsuspecting. Mexican agencies and car importers fear that smugglers could sneak them across the border. All these concerns spurred the Louisiana legislature to take action. A bill requiring flooded cars to be crushed and preventing their future sale is now awaiting Louisiana Governor Kathleen Blanco's signature. But local parishes are still responsible for towing and disposing of abandoned cars. And some in private industry have been hoping to benefit by obtaining raw material for their scrapyards, without much luck so far. When you look at it in terms of tons, you know, we melt over 600,000 tons a year, and so far it's it's been uh, minimal, the impact uh, of the scrap coming in. Kevin Torres is vice president of Mississippi River Recycling in Laplace, west of New Orleans. Each flooded car is worth around $100 there. They're taking in truckloads of big appliances, too. Obviously, the enormity of the whole event has overwhelmed many agencies. Um, There's kind of some things that have to happen upstream from us that are taking some time, and the insurance companies, quite frankly, are overwhelmed as well. Torres says he believes business is picking up. Parishes are starting to contract for mass car removal. That parallels what's happening with debris removal overall as more people return to clean out or demolish homes. 36-95-34! The old Gentilly landfill on the east side of Orleans Parish takes in what's called C&D, sheetrock, wood, even couches and mattresses. Louisiana environmentalists are already suing in federal court to close it. They say Old Gentilly isn't ready for this kind of traffic. It's got clay on the bottom, but not around two of its long sides to prevent metals and waste leaching into soils. But it's unlikely to close anytime soon. As much as 100,000 cubic yards of debris a day is coming in now. Each truck is stopped on the way in. From newly built wooden towers, Army Corps monitors and private waste managers look down into trucks to record their length and fullness. Closer to the front of the landfill, Patrick Roth stands in another tower. He's here to take payment for debris and to keep hazardous waste out. Every now and then we see them with it, we turn them around when they get it, you know. How often does that happen? Uh, What, about three, four, five times a day maybe? It ain't that much. 
I mean, everybody knows we don't take it, you know, but they got some out of town that don't know no better, so we'll catch them. Roth says it's a slow morning, though in one hour, spotters pull out a gas can, computer monitors, a small television, a fire extinguisher. All are classified as hazardous wastes. None should be here. This landfill is not lined or monitored for it. The state says nowhere have environmental laws been compromised for cleanup. But Chuck Carr-Brown of the state's Office of Environmental Services says there's no model for how to get rid of this much waste. Let's take 9-11. The amount of debris that was generated when the Twin Towers went down was 1.5 million tons uh, in a confined area, a few blocks. Uh, We have 22 million tons that's spread out over 90,000 square miles. That's the size of Great Britain. Okay, You can only process so much at one time safely. Brown says even if everything goes according to plan, it could be 18 months before the streets here are clear. For Living on Earth, I'm Molly Peterson in New Orleans. Cars can sometimes be for the birds. Bird droppings can make quite a mess, but they also happen to be historic in nature. Catherine Brainerd drops her observations about this natural nuisance. Last night, I parked my car under a tree. This morning, my car was covered with bird droppings. Why can't those birds watch where they go? Bird droppings can be very annoying, but that doesn't mean they don't have a place in the world, besides on my windshield. In ancient Peru, the Inca harvested bird manure, and they called it guano. Back then, guano was considered white gold because it fertilized the soil of overused fields. But when the Spanish arrived, they went straight for the yellow gold, bypassing the white stuff and guano went out of style. In the mid-1850s, guano's popularity made a comeback in the United States. When East Coast fields began to falter, ships sailed out in search of guano. Tropical islands full of birds and white gold became big money, and businesses like the Baltimore Fertilizer Company fought for harvesting rights. The actual work, hacking and dynamiting rock-hard bird excrement from cliffs, was dangerous and difficult. It was not a job many wanted. So the guano companies hired recently freed black slaves from Maryland to do the dirty work. Eventually, chemical fertilizer was invented and guano's glory days were over. But bird droppings are still around today and people still find uses for them. A company in Benson, Minnesota just built a power plant fired by, you guessed it, bird droppings. Turkey dung. The company calls it a poultry litter plant because poultry sounds better than turkey and litter sounds better than dung. It will consume 700,000 pounds of turkey droppings a year and supply 55,000 homes with clean, renewable power, giving a whole new meaning to turkey leftovers. In New Zealand, the Museum of Non-Primate Art hosted an exhibit called Significant Works of Windshield Art. Viewers saw framed droppings of barn owl, pigeon, and spotted flycatchers. A portrait of blue-winged teal poop sold for $6,000. And at a Santa Fe spa you can get a Japanese nightingale facial. The bird droppings are imported from Japan, pulverized into powder, and then mixed with essential oils to form a facial mask that cleanses and exfoliates skin, all for 130 bucks plus tip. Which is funny, because once my sister got the same thing for free. We were walking down a street in New York City. Suddenly, a pigeon did his business on my sister's head, right in her hair, A lady nearby got all excited, said it was good luck, and that my sister had been blessed by a bird. Oh, honey, she said, get yourself to the corner market and play the lottery. So the next time you or your car get bombed by birds, 
think about the history of bird droppings. And here's a cleanup tip. Pour seltzer water over the droppings, let it sizzle a few seconds, and then wipe it clean with a soft cloth. And consider the children's rhyme. Little birdie in the sky, why'd you do that in my eye? I sure am glad that cows can't fly. Catherine Brainerd avoids parking her car under trees outside her home in Bethesda, Maryland. Just ahead, why your body image may be mostly in your head. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, online at MOTT.org, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. The Kresge Foundation, building the capacity of nonprofit organizations through challenge grants since 1924, on the web at KRESGE.org. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education, and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and coming up, why the mall is where it's at. First, this note on emerging science from Emily Torgrimson. Honey, does this make me look fat? Don't go there, people into that dead man's land, the fragile netherworld of body image. Especially because what your partner sees in the mirror may be a mirage. According to a new study led by University College London, feeling fat or thin is a construct of the brain. To identify which parts of the brain involve body image, scientists tricked participants into believing their waists were shrinking using a technique called the Pinocchio illusion. Scientists attached a vibrating device to volunteers' wrists that simulates the sensation of the wrist flexing inward. With their hands resting on their waists, volunteers all felt that their waist had shrunk by up to 28%. At the same time, scientists found high activity levels in the posterior parietal cortex, the part of the brain that integrates sensory information from all over the body. The subjects who reported the strongest shrinking sensation also demonstrated the strongest activity in this part of the brain. Though we process information about our body size and shape every day, there's no specialized receptor like the nose for smell. The information comes from various sources, our skin, joints, muscles, our vision, and the brain appears to synthesize these sources into a map, a sketch of our body. The goal for scientists is to see if people with anorexia or body dysmorphic disorder People who over or underestimate their body size or focus on a small or imagined flaw. If they, too, experience distortion in this part of the brain. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Emily Torgrimson. Like it or not, you'll probably find yourself in one before the holiday season ends. I'm talking about the mall that mecca of merchandising and marketing that has come to define how and where many Americans not only shop but socialize as well. Producer Jonathan Mitchell returned to his hometown in the Midwest to bring us a sound portrait of the place that was and still is the community center, if not its very identity. Suburbia. Freshness. Edge city development. That was the sign of the future. The very future of who we want to be. Metropolitan. Younger, fresher, cleaner. You know, what we have here is what we have, and bam, it's all there. It's all there. People were so ready for a mall to come here, and it... It was just an untapped market. You have to change with the times, and you have to figure out what people want. 
Who wants to walk around downtown in the middle of winter? Nobody. The mall offered a whole new range of national companies that weren't present in the community at that point in time. Everybody will want to come to our mall now. It was American. It was metropolitan. Metropolitan feeling. Why are we the only town that doesn't have a mall in the United States? So when it came... We were hip and happening. We were a real town. (laughs) We weren't just some little spot in the middle of a cornfield. We've made it. And it left it left such an enormous hole in the downtown. I kind of like downtown like it was when I was a kid. You know, all the businesses were downtown. For many years, the downtown had been the epicenter of retailing. Older people don't like change that much. They'd like to have it just like it was. Downtown was magical. People came down here on Friday night, and it was it was a hangout. It was the place where you came, where you had something to eat, where you shopped. And we, were, we felt with a great deal of pride that we were the leading department store in town. Started in 1886 on 5th Street. My grandfather and his two brothers built this 10-story building at the corner of 5th and Washington in 1925 and 1926. I think that changed. With the coming of the automobile, edge city development, suburbanization, automobile culture, the moving outward. It was the 60s, and the trend of the the day was these new malls that were popping up everywhere. Malls were being built, and uh, we wanted to be involved. The large department stores made a pretty quick exodus from the downtown to the new mall. Because it was part of being in business and trying to grow your business. The usual newspaper stories appeared decrying, you know, the loss of our downtown, our sense of community, and I, and I think with some real basis. We had heard these horror stories in certain towns where a mall had been built and the downtown stores had dropped its volume as much as 40%. Well, that'll put you out of business in a hurry. And we knew we were going to drop volume because some of the volume of the people that came downtown to the store were going to go to the new shopping center, obviously. So we, we calculated that it would be about 25%. Well, when it was all said and done, it was 100% because the store was eventually closed. When I was five years old, I remember driving by the mall just to see its progress and seeing this, this huge... And it was so huge. This huge building. This mall was just massive. These huge forms. I don't remember seeing anybody actually working on it, but I remember watching it and wondering what was going on in there because that time I didn't understand the concept of a mall. Okay, we are now driving around the mall. There's the Sears. Um, oh, it looks like any other mall. We're looking for, we're going to walk, go around the mall to the second level, and um, it's where the theater, we have a movie theater where the entrance is, but that's also the main drag into the food court. People tend to have their favorite entrance. Even if the store that you're going to is, is far away, you always park up in the you know upper level by Bergner's because that's where you've always parked, and it's easier to get out. Or you know they all have their motivation. This is my favorite place to park because it takes you bam right into the food court. My favorite place to park is actually the lower level near Bergner's. Yeah, because uh, it's it's overlooked because it's actually sort of cutting into the hillside. If I cannot find my, my a good parking space, which it's not looking good. There's hardly any parking places out here. Then I go down to the lower level of Sears. That'll take me into the automotive section. Just park anywhere. Just park in the normal spot. Yeah. Okay. I don't think it'll be open, but... We are now in G9, upper G9. And wait, is this a parking space? Because if it is, I'm taking it. Oh, I hate when that happens. It's handicapped. It's handicapped. It's 
not looking good, dude. Let's go down to Sears. Park right here. What you want to park here? Oh look, here's a parking place. Amazing. Well, there's always the possibility of a better one. We're still only half a block away from... I, I suppose so, but you know what? I walk nowhere. <laughs> I don't. I don't walk anywhere. I drive everywhere I go. So for but, me... But even when you're far away, you're still like, you know, if you were downtown, you'd have to walk blocks, probably. That, that's yeah. true, but you know what? I don't go downtown. Most people don't go downtown. You know why? Because the mob brought everybody here. walk around and we look at the clothes and time disappears oh that's nice and everything was shiny and new restaurants and drugstores and movie theaters and smiling clerks greet you oh that's nice and it smelled new it's clean there's no crime there's a place in the center of the mall that they call center court can you meet me at center court yes but uh, you know it had skylights and had trees growing inside which was really bizarre and it was a good place to go look and just look around and, and uh, you know, I, I was kind of like wishing, you know, you go there and you, you wish, I wish I had this or when I get some money, I'll, maybe I'll come back and I'll get this. And we did a lot of wishing. Everybody did a lot of wishing. That is cool. Isn't that cool? I love that. Isn't that cool? What, what are you looking at? Yeah, it's right here. I always want to stop here and look at it. I'm like drawn into the store. It's, it's, it's got shiny objects. But that's exactly what it is. It's got shiny objects. Look at that. Isn't that cool? How much is that? I, I guess it became the place to go for shopping, for entertainment, for just that sort of teenage, adolescent, lingering around kind of thing. There's a lot of young people in here. I'm looking, I'm standing here looking around. I could be the oldest one here. Look right over there. A lot of kids. Look at the way they're kind of walking. They kind of got the little twitch in their hip, and their hair is kind of bouncing a certain way, and their eyes are darting back and forth. The eyes. And they're looking. You would walk around in search of boys. When you're of a certain age... The mall is the place where you find your freedom. That was where everybody went. Looking for boys and clothes and whatever else you could find. And Traveled in little tribes around different locations in the mall. and Look for girls. <laughs> That's it. Like this group of guys here, they all have stocking caps all pulled down like over their eyebrows. Some guys following us around. Yeah, I stalk them. <laughs> so all you girls out there, watch out now. <laughs> I'm just playing. We'd all act like we were cool and we really didn't want them to follow us. But Do you look for guys here? <laughs> you know, that was the whole reason why we were there was for them to follow us. Have you ever found a girl here? Uh, yeah. Yeah, a few times. I don't know, like, you'll be in line, they'll ask you something, and then they'll just start talking to you. Be myself, that's all you can be. I, I met people um, by working there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Everybody that I knew, all my friends, worked at the mall. And I became the assistant manager and acting manager. Thank you very much. I think what there was was there was a food chain related to where you worked. And, you know, you started working at McDonald's or one of those god-awful kiosks in the center that sold, like, you know, barbecue paste. And then you'd work your way up. And I got to the point 
where I was the guitar salesman in the music store and I worked in the CD shop as well. So that was probably the coolest I've ever been. Oh, you know where we should go? Where? The perfume department. The perfume department. I'm a beauty advisor is my actual title. So like when people come up, I tell them about like color and that kind of thing. And then um, sell makeup, basically. Do you do makeovers? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't really like working at the mall. I would come to shop, and that used to be fun, but now I just feel like I don't want to even come here anymore because I have to come here all the time to work. Most people are rude. I thought I used to think most people were nice, but most people are rude. There was a part of working at the mall that I didn't like. I didn't like the idea that I couldn't look outside windows and see what was going on outside. I was stuck inside of this cave. The mall is, um, I don't know, it's pasty. It's just, it's sunless and windowless and... Immaculate. Sterile. That sort of hermetically sealed mall type of environment, that corporate street. A really safe environment where there's security all the time. Very orderly, very modern. It gives you a place to be inside. You don't have to get out in the cold or the heat. What is a mall but a large cocoon keeping the world out? They're too generic. And there's nothing unique about them anymore. It's sort of a homogenous experience where if you go to almost any mall in the country... Any mall in any town in any state. Every mall in every place in every town is... Gap, 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 gap. It's very similar by design. Maybe there's comfort in that. Our city, I think, has a lot to offer people. But basically, people talk about the mall people are going to the mall, people are talking about what they bought at the mall. You know, what we have here is what we have, and if you want things, that's where you have to go to get them. Anything you ever wanted is is inside of a mall. Well, I met my wife at the mall. (laughs) When I was cool, um, we would get off work at 9 o'clock, because that's when the mall closed, and we would hang out in the parking lot at the mall and we would make jokes about how the full moon was beautiful and shining off of the windshields of, you know, the 88 Buick. And sometimes we would uh, ride in my convertible around the mall parking lot. And, 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 you know, despite all of the problems and, and cultural homogenization, it's still a pretty fun memory. My husband bought his tux there right before we got married. And then when I was pregnant... I went into labor there. Honey, mommy is recording right now. All right. Do you like the mall, Hannah? What's your favorite thing about the mall? (laughs) The Disney store. Now, it's interesting in the history of retailing in the 19th century, actually, before the development of the great department stores, most shopping was done in small regional areas neighborhood grocers, and so on. And as it became centralized, a group of merchants in Chicago brought suit against the stores like Marshall Fields and others as an unfair competition. Well, some people get left out, and there's nothing that anybody can do about it. It's just the way it is. Obviously, that didn't keep Marshall Fields and other large department stores from prospering. And we began to think of our downtowns traditionally 
as the center of our community. Cities are a living, breathing, changing entity. Right now, malls are going through a very difficult time. Now, these many years later, the mall has spawned so many other big box stores. And perhaps the bigger threat are the big box stores. So it's nothing new. Um, this is the way that cities live or die. And maybe, maybe, you know what, maybe if we never got them all, maybe our city would just, just be this small little town that had nothing, not even a mall. And I think what's significant here is we not only look at history as something that's 100 years old or 10 years old or even one year old, we look at history as happening today and in the future. Where are we going? What are we going to do? What are we reaching for? Well, the world is moving pretty fast, and uh, as you get older, it even seems to move faster. Trends come and go. We decide as a society the things that are good for us. If you can see that things can change and that you can survive and that they can be better. Is it better? I'm not sure it is. But that's the way it is. Our city, I think, has a lot to offer people. It's a really nice place to live. It's easy to buy a house. It's a nice size city. Fairly easy to make a living. I think it's a safe place. And the cost of living is very reasonable. It's really a great place to raise a family. It's the middle of America. I think that's a good thing. Fits my taste perfectly. You're probably going to find its beauty in the people. Be myself. That's all you can be. It's the people. And I think, by and large, we have a community full of wonderful, wonderful people. But while I think that people shape the town, the town shapes the people. The question is, do these people look happy that they're here? Do you think they do? I don't know. She didn't look too unhappy. No, I think they look pretty happy. It's just fun to see our country be our country and our people be our people. And what better place to do it at the mall? Portrait of the Mall was produced by Jonathan Mitchell of the Hearing Voices Radio Project, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We leave you this week at a different kind of mall on the other side of the world. Sarah Peebles recorded these merchants hawking their goods at Tokyo's Amiyoko shopping district. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Susan Shepard, and Jeff Young, with help from Christopher Bolick, Kelly Cronin, James Kerwood, and Michelle Queter. Our interns are Brianna Asbury, Kevin Friedel, and Emily Torgrimson. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our theme. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations. The Ford Foundation.
Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.